After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. And this week, oh guys, we've got a real treat because we're going into a documentary which I loved. Uh, I think it's extremely important. I hate using that word, but I'm going to go with it. It's extremely important to pay attention to. It's something that we're thinking about, but we're not really talking about as a country. And uh, I'm so excited to have the documentarian here. Phyllis Ellis is joining me today. Hey, Phyllis, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, so the film today is Toxic Beauty, and people can see it right now on CBC Gem. It's streaming in Canada. Thank you, taxpayers. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what Toxic Beauty is about? It's about some women who had, you know, adverse reactions and sometimes fatal diagnosis linked to the use of personal care products and cosmetics. It's about some extraordinary scientists, researchers endocrinologists, doctors, OBGYNs that have been working, advocates, uh, activists, that have been working in this space for a really long time. It's about the lack of regulation around this industry. It's what you said, you know, sort of the cliched raising awareness. But I think it's really hard to unknow what you know. And um, sometimes as filmmakers, we, you know, sort of land on a topic and it's intimately affects you, people you love, people you know, kind of everybody, because it, it was interesting. Scott Faber at Environmental Working Group said he was doing a, a talk and he said he was speaking to a thousand people. And he said, who in this room didn't use a personal care product or a cosmetic this morning? And I think one person out of a thousand people didn't shower that morning or whatever, you know, didn't brush their teeth, didn't put deodorant on, didn't put cologne on. It's something that we all use. So it's also something that we all can relate to. Now, going back into this idea of you as a, as a filmmaker coming to this topic and this subject, you've been doing social awareness films for a while. You did a film back in 2015 for Rethink Breast Cancer called I Am Annie, which was beautiful. And then you had another one in 2016 called Girls Night Out, which is also streaming on CBC Doc. We dealt with how the media encourages young women to binge drink. Were those two kind of stepping stones to be able to do something on a larger platform or is this something you've always enjoyed? I, had, I was doing a, a film actually called About Her, which was about nine young women with uh, a rare form of, well, it's HER2 positive breast cancer. Because I had been working in comedy, you know, I do socially conscious and socially unconscious things, but I'd been working in you know, scripted comedy and I, you know, and I was also doing a documentary series at the time called Crystal Living the Dream about Crystal Shawanda, who was the first indigenous country artist to be signed by Sony in Nashville. And so I was working on it. And when I did about her, um, it was so intimate working with real human beings in their real life. Um, I sort of put everything else aside and started to focus on docs. But I've always been very focused on women's issues, women's rights, human rights, self-esteem, I was an Olympian, so spent a lot of time with a lot of women and, uh, you know, sort of socialized in sport, you know, gives you a perspective on uh, a lot of different things. So I think my impulse is always to sort of lean toward women's stories because I'm a woman and I think that's my point of view. Girls Night Out, for example, 
you know, we were looking at big alcohol and we were looking at binge drinking and it, it was a very, very fast, um, turnaround, very fast shoot. And, um, it was a, um, for, uh, POV, um, on CBC, which is, you know, you're, you're, you're cutting for, you know, 43 minutes. So it's, you're cutting for a television show. When CBC and Jordana Ross at the doc channel, who I have to give, you know, big kudos to because, you know, a lot of people looked at the subject matter three years ago and said, well, man, you know, how bad can it be? Um, you know, she just said, okay, you know, we're going to give you the financing. And what you get there is you get to um, develop and and shoot a full-length feature film. Having that kind of time, and, and, and we, we sort of started developing it almost three years ago. So you go through Jordana and the Doc Channel, CBC say yes. They come in with the first, uh, you know, confidence and, and sort of financing. And then you develop the project. And then you take it back to them and then they green light, so to speak, the, the feature length. I knew very quickly in, um, we used sort of the talc story as the bedrock, you know, narrative to kind of glue it all together because what I learned, I mean, I was, you know, I didn't know uh, much about the subject before I started other than the kind of shampoo I used. And uh, what I came to, to, to know was that and learn from the experts in the film, it's not often using something once, you know, your face burns and you don't use it again. It's the accumulate, accumulation of the body burn of the toxicants, chemicals and carcinogens that we're constantly reapplying. And so even though, you know, you can get rid of phthalates that which is, you know, an endocrine disruptor or parabens, which I'm sure everybody's heard of. We know that you can eradicate a certain you can get rid of some, of a lot of it by urinating it out. And you see that in the film with the young medical student Mimi Nguyen, who has a uh, body burden test based on the, her uh, product use. The talc story is interesting because it is studied over time. So you're looking at women that use talc in the the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and then it's not until you know the the you know late 2000s that they get diagnosed with cancer because cancer takes a long time often to develop. So it was the one story we could focus on that showed you know you use, you use it this much and over time this is the this is the end result. You know, and then we, you know, we were able to, um, you know, speak to so many other people. And I also knew it was a huge story as well, because there's probably a six part one hour series sitting on the cutting room floor because the subject matter is huge. And I couldn't get to in 90 minutes all the incredible stories that I was uh, introduced to. I just didn't have the time. So we kind of considered it a journey overview um you know, um, awareness and solution, you know, solution oriented film that wasn't too, um, so, uh, wasn't too technical and had narrative stories that you could attach yourself to. This is a Canadian-made film that also deals with a lot of American issues, and you're dealing with a lot of the American regulation, and uh, a lot of your experts are from Canada, but you're dealing with a lot of the American ramifications of this. And I always feel like Canada has this, well, we're not as bad as the Americans' problem that we deal with, and so we brush a lot of things under the rug. For example, racism, product specifications, things like that. I'm curious if in your research while you were doing this, you said you have like a 
a six hour piece yeah. ready to go. Were yeah. you noticing any major differences in the way regulations happen with Canada versus the states? Our governmental system is different. We still have an FDA, but as you know, like Julie Galfand, who's with the Auditor General's oh. office, you know, they did a big audit on cosmetics and personal care products. And what we have it's called a post-market regulatory system. So basically, a product can go on the market for 100 days. As long as nobody says anything, it's good to go. Dr. Bruce Lanfear, who's out in Victoria, you know, he, he said point blank, at the base level, very little difference between the regulations in Canada and in the United States. Now, on paper, the EU bans 1,300 plus chemicals, Canada bans 500 plus chemicals, and the United States bans 11. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean just because they're banned doesn't mean they're not being used. And just because they're banned doesn't mean that they're being regulated any better. And I think that we have to empower as Canadians, we have to empower our FDA and our, our regulatory system um, as a government. We have to empower them to regulate. It's a massive industry. I mean, if you think about I don't know if somebody said the other day, it, 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 the numbers kept going up as we were making the film, like $775 billion in like international industry. So this is the, this is a Titanic industry. Like the film's like a little tugboat next, next to this, you know, massive industry. David Michaels, Dr. David Michaels, who's actually in Washington, he wrote this book called Doubt is the Product. And I had read it before I, um, I started making the film. And basically Doubt is the Product was the slogan or the tobacco industry used. So they weren't really, the, the product wasn't the cigarette. The product was creating enough doubt in people's minds that they would still purchase the cigarette. And also, too, he talked about balanced argument. He used climate change as an example. You know, in the late 70s, early 80s, the media was trying to do a balanced argument. Maybe there is climate change. I don't know. There is climate change. And we were allowed to sort of feel like, well, it can't be that bad because these really smart scientists are saying there isn't, you know, climate change is not upon us. Um, if we'd listen to the sound science that wasn't paid for by industry, and that's what we have to do as consumers too and as human beings. When we read a study or when we read an article, you can actually plug that study in and you can dig back and find out who sponsored or who paid for that study. It was funny. So I, I, I saw a blog the other day about toxic and this person was saying, oh, you know, it's not that bad and whatever. And I, you know, you click two spots down and you find out that the person that was talking actually is a communications person for a big cosmetic. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not saying, you know, every single bit of science is perfect. But when you doubt science that's not paid for by the industry that they're uh, questioning, it degrades all science. I think we, we, as consumers and as people and as constituents, you know, we, we can ask those questions. You and I could actually create a, a product right now and call it Thursday and make put in a pretty bottle and say, I don't know, made your skin soft or something and um, put whatever we wanted in it. And if we wanted to take it to local drugstore or local beauty store and they, they smelled it and touched it and said, oh, we really like this, they could purchase 
50 units from us and put it on the, the shelf. There's something really interesting in that. So I'm actually following the supplements industry right now because there's a very similar issue with regulation right? in the supplements industry, which is just mind-boggling. Totally. But there's a very strange thing that seems to be happening about this blame and responsibility game of who is actually responsible for what. Is it on the consumers for doing their research and being able to be like, Uh-oh. oh yeah, this person did this and this study was followed, was paid for by this. Is it on the government for regulating these things? Is it on the business? Yeah. Yeah. for being responsible and putting things. <laughs> is it on the doctors for saying, hey, if you take St. John's work while you're taking birth control, it can mess with your birth control? Like, exactly. who who is the onus on? And the companies, the companies, they are very good at pushing that blame and being like, well, it's not on us. And until they have these, like, $4 billion lawsuits like Johnson & Johnson dealt with in your film, they don't put those warning labels on until, like, the, the money comes down. It's not a thing. Yeah, they still haven't put the warning labels on. And you and I could go over to Shoppers Drug Mart right now and buy a bottle of baby powder with talc in it. There are 2,000 products, personal care and cosmetics that contain talc. 1,000 of them are loose powders. So we're talking, it can ha- it can be in dry shampoo and eyeshadow and blush and powder deodorant. And, you know, there's a, lots of things that, uh, it's like Dr. Kramer says in the film, talc is talc. I don't think the owner should be on the consumer. It was only a suggestion. If someone is confused, you can you know, click back. I don't think we should have to stand in a store and read words that are 75 letters long that we don't know what they are anyway and don't know that that word itself then splits with the next word and turns into formaldehyde. That's not on us. What is, what, what is uh, I, I think it's responsibility of the government and the industry. It's really, like Dr. Michael said, there was this um, quote in the 40s or something, it's really hard to convince a person they're wrong when their livelihood depends on it. So it's not like everybody in a, you know, that works for big brand cosmetics thinks, so oh, I'm going to make this red lipstick and I'm going to put 1,4-dioxin in it and, uh, and lead and uh, mercury in skin lightening and formaldehyde in whatever, shampoo. They use those things because they work. They act as preservatives. They're cheap. You know, people say, oh, but it's just trace amounts of lead in lipstick. No amount of lead is safe. The World Health Organization said that a really long time ago. So why is it okay that there's lead in women's lipstick? And I think about myself at 11 years old, sneaking into the bathroom, putting my mom's red lipstick on. (laughs) And now, you know, I'm 30. No, I'm not 30. Now I'm old, uh, older, and, uh, you know, the number of years you apply and you lick it off and it goes into your lips. And, you know, so over time, what's, you know, what's your lead body burden after wearing lipstick for a gajillion years? And I mean, it's, it's, you know, the lead is certainly in the darker shades, but, and, and first of all, the, even the idea that I'm saying to you that there's lead in lipstick seems insane. However, one of the subjects in the film said, make no mistake, this is an assault on women. And it is, it, it, it is a women's health issue. And women's health issues are down the dial. And I said this a couple times. I can assure you if men's testicles were falling off because of the use of talc, this would have been banned or a warning label would have been put on this product a long time ago. I think our responsibility is to tell our local MPs and our politicians that we want these products that we use sometimes 12 products, 17 products, 27 products, if somebody's going out for an evening, that we're reapplying all the time, that we don't want them to be toxic. And I'm not sure that the answer is the clean beauty industry. 
I mean, I, I support and I think it's great that people are formulating clean beauty. Did that then negate the how many ever years that huge, massive Titanic brands have been hawking stuff that has endocrine disruptors in it, one for dioxin and baby shampoo? Uh, you know, we could go through in all, in, in all the details. Skin lightening is a epidemic, world epidemic, and there's mercury and lead and terrible, terrible things in, in that. Yeah, I wanted to bring up that uh, that skin lightening, because especially one of the things I really loved about the documentary is that you're not just talking about white women, you're also talking about women of color. And skin lightening is one of those things that I am a white woman, full disclosure, I don't really think about, but it is such a massive thing. And it's straight up bleach, like women are being told to put bleach on their faces to make themselves whiter, which is just mind boggling to begin with. But it's also the, the issue with beauty standards of like, we consider this as a general society, as according to Instagram, which is making the world smaller we consider this attractive and your attractiveness is your value which is a whole other thing entirely and so that's just making the issue worse totally and i mean dr zoda says it's fantastically she wrote this article called environmental injustice of beauty and she said we have to change these beauty norms so women don't have to choose between their health and trying to be beautiful based on these arbitrary standards. You know, certainly women of color are marketed to differently and they have different kinds of products that there's been, you know, I, I certainly found this in my research and I, I didn't have not time to put it in the film. I, it was just a whole other film, but the, the links between, you know, leave in hair products and hair straightening products and breast cancer, uh, especially with African-American women and the direct marketing of talc and baby powder to Latinas and African-American women and women that are, have a larger stature. And so there's all kinds of angles that this story can take. But someone asked me what, what my clean beauty routine was the other day. I'd like to lean in that that means I look in the mirror in the morning and I think I'm enough without without starting whatever routine to alter my face and uh, I think I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that the real antagonist in this story it's not really the carcinogens toxicants chemicals it's the marketing uh, departments at these big brands that are constantly barraging us and not to mention beauty influencers and makeup stuff on YouTube and that, that basically tell us that we have to change the shape of our eyes, and if we have wrinkles, we should age-defy, and if our hair is curly, here's how you straighten it. If our hair is straight, here's how you kink it up, and our skin is the wrong color, and our teeth aren't white enough, so I think... There's a lot to be said in that, too, and I'd like to make a whole film about that. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because when this film came out at Hot Docs, which it did extremely well there, you Ooh. got some serious press, including from Vogue fashion magazine, uh, Weirdly Goop, which I was like, oh, man, you got interviewed by Goop. That's a whole other thing. But yes. they are also some of the people that, like, I mean, on the very next page, you're going to see lipstick ads that probably have lead in it. So it's interesting that they wanted to discuss this, and they are very much part of that industry and part of that machine of like, this is what you're going to buy next season. This is what's going to happen. I mean, Goop is pushing products that are straight up harmful for women and specifically marketing to women and they're very bad for them. So what do you think it was that they decided to, to take on this film and, and talk to you and encourage it and then on the back end be like, yeah, yeah, but we're still going to keep doing what we're doing? Yeah, but you know what? That's the, that's the what is it? The clean beauty industry. That's the $80 billion question right now. Everybody's selling something. And yet... Um, 
often with best intention. I 100 zillion percent agree with you. And the, the most important information I have learned, the only real way to tell if a product is clean or green or organic or natural is if you know what the formulation is for real. And if the product's been sent to a lab and it doesn't have any of the bad stuff in it, then you know it's clean. Well, none of us can afford to send our products to a lab. It costs a lot of money. But there are organizations that have sent a ton of products to labs to be tested. Environmental Defense here in Toronto, they've done some testing, Campaign for Safe Cosmetics. They tested a bunch of fragrances uh, recently, and um, I think JLo was like the most toxic fragrance on the market. I mean, even even oil things like Joe Malone. I used to wear Joe Malone, and I thought, oh, it's the most you know, it's an oil, it's called grapefruit, it's all natural. And, you know, of course it wasn't, it was like eight out of 10 on the toxic chart. And there's, you know, there are apps, but they're not perfect, but there's certainly a guide anyway. What I do know, what I learned that really stuck with me and it really helped me kind of clean out my house completely, whether it, you know, with cosmetics, personal care, and even I did it with cleaning stuff, any label that says the word fragrance or parfum, don't use it. That's it's a really easy way to start so that it's not so overwhelming because the word fragrance itself, because fragrance in a product is proprietary. And in that word fragrance, they can put the word fragrance on a bottle of something. And under that word fragrance, there could be 235 chemicals and some of them can be really harmful. They're not all, all not all chemicals are bad, right? But that's, those are the two words. So if just by rule of thumb, if you don't purchase anything that has, that smells, and it's really hard not to, there's this whole scent discrimination too. You know, you smell great. What are you wearing? Are you smell great. What are you wearing? And actually like most of that stuff is highly toxic because we want to have a cream that smells like whatever. And we want to put a bit of something on that makes us smell prettier than, I don't know, than our natural body smell or that natural body scent. It was interesting when I was in London, um, Dr. Philippa Darber, who I'd, I'd spoken to in the film and she came to the Q and A on the screening that we had there. And somebody in the audience asked her because she does a lot of research with antiperspirant deodorant and, and uh, the links to breast cancer and they said you know well what should we use and she said i would not let anyone i love wear deodorant or antiperspirant not clean not mean not nothing i just wouldn't and you find over time when you stop using it your body starts to regulate itself again and doesn't smell nearly as bad i say all of this but and i, t I tell this story often i'm all like making the film finding out all this stuff, cleaning out, doing whatever. And then I thought, oh, shit, you know what? I should let my hair go gray. And uh, I thought, okay, I can do this. I can lean into it, being all, all that. And I was going to London. And three days before I went to London, I went to the salon and put $300 worth of toxic products on my head because I thought, I can't go to London looking like this. So it's really hard to adjust. So I think we just, you know, reduce, reduce, reduce and remove. Knowing about it just makes us more conscious. I'm more concerned about what I marinated my children in and how pregnant women, there's key times that we're, more, we're, most, talk, we're most vulnerable to toxicants and carcinogens. And it's, you know, in vitro, when the baby's born, puberty, childbearing years for men and women. And then, of course, for women, menopause. And these are key sort of when our hormones are spiking. That's when these, you know, endocrine disruptors 
um, hormone things that can disrupt or affect or attach to or mimic our hormones. There's a great story from Eric James Todd told that I don't think it's in the film, but I think I put it on the website. You know, the Endocrine Society was doing a test and this um, doctor named Dr. Chandra, was, he had a bunch of young um, African-American kids and they all had precocious puberty, meaning they were six, seven, eight. And they had their periods. They were developing breasts, uh, and 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 young boys were develop, you know, developing hair uh, in their genital area, and, and under and under their arms and on their faces. And he couldn't figure it out. And then he thought he would look at, you know, the moms. They were all using kind of the same hair products, that were um, endocrine disruptors, like disrupting these kids, the, the, these young kids' endocrine system. And as soon as they stopped using the products the precocious puberty stopped but what happens when we do that we we put this on young boys or young girls and it doesn't stop or even if we're using it during puberty these things say mimic estrogen for example in young girls well you don't want too much estrogen because too much estrogen can contribute to breast cancer 20 years down the road so I think that the really exciting thing for me, I mean, I already toxified both my kids. They're older now and they'll figure it out for my grandbabies. I think one of the sort of most important things is for young people to know, you know, so that they can alter, you know, adjust their own product use and be more aware and more conscious, but also look at, you know, of what we're putting on babies and young people. I think that's a, a perfect place to to wrap up the interview. Thank you. Once again, you can check out Toxic Beauty on CBC Gem right now in Canada. It is free. I think it's also available on iTunes to rent uh, internationally. Is that correct? Uh, it is. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So you have no excuses. It is accessible. Go get it. <laughs> and with that, I always ask two questions of my guests. Phyllis, the first question is, how do you think Canada can support its artists more? That's a great question because it's a very loaded question. You know, sort of see the, see the value of Canadian talent before we're acknowledged in the United States. Financially, I think, you know, we have a sort of a pretty good system here. But I think that, um, yeah, I think that valuing what we do while we're here before the film's in vogue. So as soon as the film is in vogue, so, you know, someone covers it for Vogue or Hollywood Reporter, all of a sudden the legitimacy of the film goes up because, well, if they think it's good, it must be good. And, oh, shit, we must, you know, we, we really should do something about it. Try and see the value of what we do here before we have to be validated by our friends south of the border. And I mean, it is like a huge, complicated, loaded question. I'm always fascinated to hear what people who are like mired in the middle of this, what their point of view and their perspective is. And uh, and yeah, just that like, don't require the outside validation. Dive in if it seems like something you'll be into you'll probably be into it. Check it out. We do we do produce things of value. That's why I do this show. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the second question, which talking about things of value, do you have a recommendation for our listeners for a Canadian film you love? Well, I have two. So uh, I love a lot of Canadian films. So I'm not selecting this film because I don't think there like aren't a bajillion other really fabulous Canadian documentaries. But I think Matt Gallagher's Prey, P-R-E-Y, is, is, is pretty special. It is a really unique approach to storytelling. It's a pretty uh, tough subject, but it's a beautiful film. Um, 
you know, was saying that um, We Will Stand Up by Tasha Hubbard is pretty fabulous as well. And then on the narrative side, um, Adriana Mag's Goalie about late, great Terry Sawchuk, the goalie. It's a beautiful film. It's really all about Canadian, you know, immigrant story and who made it big and tragic and beautiful. But I think that those are those three films are, are really sort of worth worth pursuing and worth having a look at. We had Matt Gallagher on the show talking about Prey, and I believe it's on CBC Gem right now as well. And I can endorse that one as well. It's really something special. Again, very difficult subject matter, but well worth your while. And also about authorities who need to be stepping in and getting stuff done who are not. Right. Abuse of power. And I think that that's what this all comes down to. I think in Toxic, it, it can wind itself down to that. Certainly Matt's film... It's loud and loud, like it's, you know, first out of the block. That's clearly what that whole subject matter, you know, is what that's all about. And um, and I think with, a, a you know, a feature length narrative, gosh, you know, docs are, you know, we've got hot docs and it, it's such a spectacular place for us. And I was so honored last year for our film to be one of the five big idea films. I mean, I was sitting at the press conference. I didn't even know what that meant. And then they announced and they said, I weigh, weigh. And I thought, oh, my God, like no, <laughs> no pressure, right? Yeah. But, you know, we have hot dogs and whatever. But narrative films, Canadian narrative films, um, you know, like where do they land and how do we, you know, when we're competing against these, you know, massively multi-gajillion dollar um, films that are Oscar whatever, you know, a small film like, I mean, small, I'm saying budget-wise, you know, um, and the effort the filmmakers have to put in to even make it remotely in, in, a, in a place where it can compete at, say, even the Carlton. And I certainly think as filmmakers, we should be supporting each other as well. It's also seeing the little gaps of when we have done incredibly well internationally. So like uh, the mid late 70s and Cronenberg and that whole Cinepex launching people's careers, Denis Alcan, uh, people like that. And then you have that gap and then you get like the early 90s and Patricia Rosema and Bruce McDonald and um, that whole thing. And now we've got our Quebecois filmmakers doing incredibly well, all poached by Hollywood. No, I could have named like there's so many beautiful films uh, coming out of Quebec as well. I mean, I, you know, so, so moved and inspired by so many you know amazing filmmakers here in Canada like we we've got some extraordinarily talented people that are making important films about important subjects thank god we've got doc hot dogs right in our you know back pocket that you know continues to support our work and you know a lot of our films are doing really well internationally as well toxic had this really weird thing happen it's, it was the US distributor it was called to Manned films and what happens is it's sort of like this I was kind of disappointed you know that it went to demand uh, I, I thought oh why isn't a big distributor picking us up but this sort of little engine that could and people demand for the film to be in a city and then they have to like they have to have like 50 people I'm just going to use a number I don't really know what it is and then once they have 50 people they green light they green light the the uh, the night in the theater and so I think it's up to like 50 something cities in the United States. They're hoping to get it up, you know, well over a hundred. 
that's unheard of for a Canadian documentary. Yeah. So we're really lucky. It's it's really something special. I can't wait for people to check it out. Once again, CBC Gym, it's free. You have no excuses. And thank you so much, <laughs> Phyllis. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for this and thank you for your work. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks for supporting all of us. It's really important. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.